Welcome to Econ on the Go. Now that we talked about the demand curve and the supply curve, we can put them together to think about how the individual choices of consumers and firms, when each is optimizing their respective decisions, come together to create the equilibrium in the market. A benchmark of the equilibrium that we like to think about in economics is the competitive market equilibrium, or the perfectly competitive outcome. Competitive markets are based on four fundamental conditions. And while there are very few examples where all the conditions apply to the market, there are some markets like basic commodities or food markets where we do see these conditions apply. Another example of a market which is pretty close to being a competitive market is the stock market. Let's think about the stock market in conjunction with whether it is a competitive market. The first condition is that a competitive market has lots of buyers and lots of sellers. And that's true for a stock market. Lots of people go and purchase individual shares of stock, and lots of people are selling their shares of stock, as long as it's a relatively liquid share of a company's stock. The second condition is that there is common knowledge. Common knowledge means that everyone who is trading on that market or participating in that market has the same information as everyone else. And that's generally true in a stock market. I know the price of Apple stock and you know the price of Apple stock and everyone else knows the price of Apple stock. There isn't anyone who knows more or less information than anyone else. And in particular, a lot of countries, the United States included, make it illegal that if you trade on a stock market when you have insider information or information that other people don't have access to, you're not allowed to do that. Now, one other thing that a common knowledge condition implies is that all the firms are selling homogenous products or the exact same product. And again, that's also true in a stock market. My share of Apple stock is the same as your share of Apple stock. It's not that my share is different from yours. The third rule is that there is no collusion in the market. And again, we generally find that true for stock markets. Buyers aren't going to get together and collude and say, we're only going to pay $3 for a share of Apple stock. And the sellers of Apple stock aren't getting together and saying, no, we're going to sell ours for $3,000 a share. The price of Apple stock is the price of Apple stock, and everyone is competing with each other in order to buy and sell and acquire or to get rid of their shares of the stock. The final fundamental condition is that there is free entry and exit, which means there's no legal or technical barriers to participating in the market. Again, generally true for stock markets. There's also a free market for the inputs. So if you think about the computers you need to participate on the market or even the shares of stock themselves, you can acquire those if you want them. There's nothing to prevent anyone from starting up in the industry. So those are our four fundamental conditions. There has to be lots of buyers and sellers, which means everyone is a price taker. There has to be common knowledge across all those buyers and sellers, meaning a homogenous product. No collusion. People are competing with each other. And there's free entry and exit in the market. Market equilibrium is where the supply and demand curve intersect in this competitive market. Remember, we drew the supply curve on the price-quantity axes, and we drew the demand curve on the price-quantity axes. Price on the vertical axis, quantity on the horizontal axis. And so we can draw them on the same price-quantity axes and overlap them with each other. Now, if there are too many buyers in the market, meaning the price is below the equilibrium where they intersect, then those buyers will start to bid up the price to ensure that they don't leave without the product that they want. And if there are too many sellers in the market, the price above equilibrium, they'll start bidding down the price to ensure that they don't go home with unsold products. 
So in our Apple stock example, if there are lots of buyers and there aren't that many people willing to sell their share of stock, the buyers will start bidding up the price to ensure that they get the share of Apple stock. And if there are lots of sellers and no one wants to buy the share of Apple stock, the sellers will start dropping the price that they'll accept for their share of Apple stock because they want to get rid of it. And so the price mechanism that causes the market equilibrium to be where supply and demand intersect is not something that is dictated by any individual in the market or even someone outside of the market. It is the communication between the buyers and sellers based on their desire to buy the product and their willingness to pay for the product that causes the buyers and sellers to communicate through that price mechanism to ultimately reach equilibrium. The competitive market framework is four lines and four letters. It's got the two axes, the supply line, the demand line, and the PQ labels on the axes and the S and the D labels on the demand and supply curves. And that's it. Four lines and four letters. And yet we can use this, this basic framework, to analyze all sorts of markets, even ones that aren't perfectly competitive. As long as there are most of the conditions that we talked about before applying to the market, then we can still consider it as if it was a competitive market and analyze it. And that's the power of the perfectly competitive framework in economics. It doesn't have to be perfect in the real world to still apply the insights from the framework. We know that if both supply and demand curves shift in the same direction along the price or the quantity axis, when we start thinking about, well, what happens when demand shifts out or what happens when supply is restricted and shifts in? And we want to know what happens to the price or quantity. If we know that both the demand and the supply curve shift in the same direction along one of the axes. So if demand shifts up and supply shifts up, they're both moving up along the price axis. We know price is going to increase. If demand shifts to the left and supply shifts to the left, then we also know that quantity is going to decrease. And again, remember, we can think about the supply curve or the demand curve as shifting up or down or left or right because of the duality between you tell me price, I'll tell you quantity, or you tell me quantity and I'll tell you price. So if they are both shifting in the same direction, if supply and demand are both shifting in the same direction, either up or down along the price axis or left or right along the quantity axis, then we know which direction the equilibrium is going to go when the curves shift. But if one shifts to the left and one shifts to the right, or one shifts up and one shifts down, then what's going to happen to price or quantity, whichever way they're shifting, up and down would be price, left and right would be quantity, is going to depend on the elasticity of the curves and which curve shifts more. So while we know that if both supply and demand shift up, price goes up, we don't know if quantity is going to increase or decrease. It depends on which curve shifts more and the elasticity of the respective curves. The last interesting concept that comes out of competitive markets is analyzing the welfare in the market, which is the sum of the consumer and producer surplus. Now, consumer surplus, we talked about a couple of episodes ago, is the area below the demand curve and above the market price. Producer surplus is the mirror of that. It's the area below the market price and above the supply curve. So remember, the supply curve represents the price I have to receive in order to supply the product, and that's essentially the cost to me of actually producing the good. So if the price is above the supply curve level, then that means I'm receiving a price above the cost to produce that certain quantity, and so I'm getting some surplus. So the consumer surplus is below the demand curve and above the market price, and producer surplus is below the market price and above the supply curve. And when we add those two together, that is the welfare in the market. That is the welfare generated by activity in that market. 
And the competitive market is a nice benchmark, again, because it's the maximum amount of surplus that we can ever get from that demand curve and supply curve in that market. We cannot generate more welfare than the competitive market equilibrium. And whenever we're not at that equilibrium, whenever we're not where the supply curve and demand curve intersect, then we have deadweight loss. And deadweight loss is the lost welfare whenever we're not at that equilibrium point. And we're going to use that when we start looking at government intervention in the next couple of episodes about what happens when the government intervenes and how does that affect the welfare in the market because of those interventions. So join us next time when we do talk about how governments intervene and in particular how taxes and subsidies work and affect that market equilibrium. <laughs>